Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm A.L. Levy, and our guest today is Chris Wiseman, who's a guitar player, producer, and songwriter, best known for his work in his band Shadow of Intent and Currents, and now also some production stuff that's really starting to pick up. Over the past few years, Chris and his bands have experienced seemingly endless growth, going all the way to headliner status on their own European tours and backing up some of the biggest bands in heavy music, such as Parkway Drive and Lorna Shore. And what's most impressive about this is that Chris, on the Shadow of Intent side, has done this independently. No labels. I consider him the poster boy for what is possible in the modern music industry if you're smart and uh, you diversify and really, really work on your individual skill sets. Anyhow, let's do this. Chris Wiseman, welcome back to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for having me back. Dude, let me just say, full disclosure for people listening— this is our second attempt at this episode, and I just want you to know that this is something that has happened from time to time with guests, and it's always a good thing. Every once in a while, you do an episode where it just doesn't work, and at first, when it used to happen, in the really, really early days, if we had a bunk episode, I wouldn't know what to do. Do I hit the guest up and let him know, or ask to redo, or just publish something bad. Eventually, I just realized, just hit the guest up and say, hey, the episode kind of kind of sucked. So anyhow, I appreciate that you hit me up with the idea of redoing this. And what that brings up for me is when it comes to working in the studio, when it comes to dealing with shows, when it comes to, I guess, working with other people's contributions or anything. Are you like that with everything you are approaching? Whichever one of your bands are in production, if it's not good enough, you're either going to ditch it or you're going to redo it, but under no circumstance release something substandard. Yes. So obviously you can't really take a show back. The show happened and you kind of reflect on it and know what to do better next time. And I guess in a way you can do it again. Like there's always the next show and you can always improve how the next show is going to go relative to the last show. But yeah, recording and editing music, you always have the opportunity to listen back and redo things. Even just in the songwriting stage, I'll make a first draft and 90 something percent of the time I already know I'm going to change stuff. Some stuff is just placeholders and I need to go back and do it. And then when it goes on to like a mixing phase or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm pretty nitpicky. Not many times. Nick, actually, your engineer knows pretty much the only time I've ever gone to a different mix from the one we had. Shout out Nick Pilata, who's uh, engineering this podcast right now. Yeah. But obviously, sometimes mixes are all good, but the artist is going for a different direction than what they get. So it can be worth it to do it again to get closer to what you want. Yeah. So when it comes to dealing with the contributions of other people, I'm curious about that because it's one thing when you're writing a song by yourself, right? And you know, this is a placeholder part. It's going to go. And then every time you hear the demo for the song, you're logging in your head. This part, it's on the chopping block. We're not going to use it. But when dealing with the contributions of others, like if you're co-writing a song and you just feel like what they gave you, they might not think it's placeholder, but in your mind, 
its placeholder or a mix just isn't there or whatever. You sunk the time into it. You put the effort into it. It's not quite what you want. I guess, how do you personally approach that? Sure. So in the songwriting phase, if it's someone else's band, this is maybe an unpopular opinion, but I kind of just choose to respect their vision and defer to them and not fight them too hard on it. If they, you know, put up a decent amount of resistance and I truly think the song will be better with my idea, but they disagree, I kind of, you know, at the risk of maybe, I don't know, people thinking I'm like a bad co-writer, producer, what, what have you, but just so that they feel their idea made it and they truly don't think my idea is better than their idea, I try to just respect their thing than be too aggressive about it. But then again, when it's my thing and my project, if I don't like something, and this happens, you know, when I work with vocalists in my band too, is if I just don't like something or they just don't like something, then it usually just scrap the whole thing. The song or the part? Ideally the part, but if we really just can't agree on a part, like they don't want to delete the part or can't think of anything better for the part, and I just don't like the part enough and the song kind of needs a part or a similar part that just can't work and we can't think of it, it'll either get scrapped or just pushed back to like the next album or two or three albums until we figure out how to fix that part. Maybe that's an inefficient way of doing things. It does suck. But yeah, there have definitely been songs, I think, even on this latest Currents record, we had a song that I think we both really liked and the chorus, just nothing that was done made it. For me, it was ruining the song when it got to the chorus and it just didn't make the album. I think my plan is to just rethink the chorus instrumentally so that the vocals can also be rethought. Let me understand this scenario. So first of all, Current's album that just came out May 5th is what we're talking about. Yes, exactly. This is being recorded May 9th, 2023, for those of you far into the future. So there's a song you were all working on and everything is good except you feel the chorus just not there or kind of sucks or just doesn't do what a chorus needs to do. Yep. But everything else in the song was good. I loved it. I love this song. Yeah. What a bummer. And I do want to make it work one day. Yeah. So is that like a democratic approach or do you just come to the table and are like, Hey dudes, like, of course, kind of sucks. We got to do better. What is the approach? I'm just asking because you get this both from Riff Hard and URM students. And hey, I personally have to deal with this too. I'm always curious how people deal with this is you'll notice a lot of people will just not say anything. So they'll allow parts that they don't like, which will breed resentment towards their own band, or they will be assholes about it too, which will breed resentment in the band. Sometimes people feel like either way you go, it's a lose-lose. So how do you make it not a lose-lose? This has happened quite a bit in Shadow of Intent where me and the vocalists just let each other have it. As in like, I don't really like the part, but we'll let you have your thing. And, you know, like you said, a year later, it's like, oh, I knew we shouldn't have done that. I knew it yeah. was a stupid idea. Dude, there's stuff from the self-titled Doth record from 2010 that at the time we were recording it, I did not like the vocals on certain songs. And 
I let it go. And to this day, I will skip that song. I fucking hate it. Like, I never grew to like it. And I realized I never grow to like those parts ever. Yep, that happens. And usually my ideal thing when collaborating with someone is we both have to love it or it's not it. And I think with the Currents album that came out, we pretty much achieved that. And the big thing I stand by, this is like a Will Putney concept I heard him say once, is just write more songs than you need or write more songs Mm -hmm. than you plan on releasing. And I fully stand by that. But I see a lot of people, A, like write only as many songs as they need, or B, they'll be like reaching back five or ten years, which I guess is fine because... After the Burial has a, a song on their newest album called Behold the Crown, and Trent was telling me that that's like one of the earliest riffs he ever made, and he finally made it work. And it's like, I think it's the biggest song on the album. You just said, though, that like if a song's not working out, you might push it back for an album or yes. two. So that could be five years. It could be. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. But I get what you're saying, because I have dug up riffs from like the early dot demos for some of the new material, stuff that I felt never got to see the light of day, but was cool then and is cool now. So it's not like it was a reject then. It was cool then. We just couldn't make it work at the time, but the part itself ruled then, it ruled now. It's one of those things, you know, music is timeless, right? So if you write something awesome at any point in time, even if it doesn't fit the song or songs that you're writing around it, that doesn't mean that it's not worthy as a piece of music, but I get what you're saying though. To revise my statement is this is in cases where people who have definitely improved in songwriting since are settling for stuff that's below their wheelhouse. Because they don't have enough. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I'm sure there's stuff I could dig up from many years ago that could work in some new stuff. Well, I mean, it's not like you sucked a few years ago, right? Like you were writing some badass shit. I actually just went through the Shadow discography last night just to refresh it. Oh, great. You're writing badass stuff for a long time. So I'm sure there's stuff from the early days that, for whatever reason, didn't make it, that maybe it's in the context of a song that overall wasn't great enough to make it to a record. But I'm sure there's parts in the stuff that didn't make it that are bangers. Yes. I'm positive. I would bet money on it. Yeah. The main cost that I start to see these days as time is more fleeting is that uh, if you do want to write more songs and you do want to scrap stuff or push stuff back is the release as a whole also gets pushed back. Really makes you think about your time management more. The tricky thing about writing is you could spend a whole day on something. You don't even know if it's going to make it. And you think of all the other stuff you could have done that day. It's a little discouraging, but we don't let that stop us. But that goes along with the write more than you need, because if you're setting out to write more than you need with the idea of having a bunch of choice cuts, that means that by doing that, you're going to have days where you sit there and write and it's not going to get used. Yep. Just part of the process, but it hurts. So speaking of time management, so you're in two fairly large bands. And it would seem like to keep those going, you'd barely have any time for anything but touring. On the surface, that's kind of what it would seem like when you think about what life is like for 
bands that are popular. So can you talk a little bit about balancing your time between performance, practice, and production? Yeah. So in general, like my busiest touring years have actually only been six months out of the year, which is a lot, but it's it's not like the whole year and not letting it get beyond that point, I feel like goes to being a little selective with what you take. We still have never done Asia. There's a lot of countries we've never played. And if both bands were doing every country, that would just eliminate any time home. So just sticking to US and Europe mostly and waiting for the right things to come around or planning the right things. I would just realize that's quite an advantage actually to have two bands that are popular because you can up the value of each one by touring less. Yep. You don't burn out your markets. You can tour with one, then go do the same exact market with the other one and you're not burning it out. It's actually quite an advantage. Yeah, that's my thought. But the disadvantage is you're again relying on leaving home to make your living. And some people don't want to be home. I think being home is kind of cool, but being on tour is also kind of cool. Okay, so you're gone six months out of the year, let's say. But then still, though, how do you balance that time anyways between, I guess, practicing and production? And I mean, even down to like when you're on tour, you want to devote some time to practicing then. You kind of got to do that too. So like no matter if you're home or if you're on the road, there's, I guess, there's this macro idea of balancing your time where it's like, okay, six months of the year, I'm touring is divided between these two bands. The other six months I'm home writing songs, producing, practicing, but it also comes down to the day to day because you got to choose hour to hour what it is you're going to work on. Any one of those things, one band or production, or just being a guitar player is a career by itself. Like you could just be a guitar player I mean, we have friends that do just that, right? Any one of these paths could be your 24-7, 365 career. So no matter if you're home or you're on the road, you got to make decisions. But I'm just wondering, like, how do you keep up with the stuff that you have to keep up with, like practicing, especially on tour? Because I know it's so fucking hard to practice on tour. Yeah, and that's that's actually the beauty I found recently post-COVID is practicing on tour has become ideal for me. You know, I just got a Boss Katana practice amp that I really like. It's battery powered and it sounds very good. And it's tiny. It could fit in a backpack and not even take up the whole backpack. On tour, I'm there to play the show and anything else is up to me how I spend the time. And at home, I feel like I could be doing so many things production-wise and it always deters me from devoted focused practice. I think I've more or less given up opening the door on tour, like with my laptop, unless it's absolutely essential. So devoted practice on tour, I feel like has become a great use of the time. Just getting the practice amp set up, hitting parts of the set or techniques that need to be refined, perfected, all that. Is there a routine? The routine is usually... Me in my head, oh man, what did I absolutely butcher last night? That's what I'm going to practice. And if I don't butcher anything, I guess I practice a little less. Usually there's always work to be done. But the routine is definitely pull up a part of the set that I'm playing as many parts as it takes and get it relaxed and comfortable as I can. 
I want to get a little specific about this. So is it like, say you biff a part more than once, like you know that this part in this song is just a motherfucker and you want to work on it. So when you sit down in your practice environment on tour to work out that part, here's some things I'm wondering. First of all, are you standing up when you're practicing or sitting down? Are you isolating just that part? Are you playing the song start to finish? What does that actually look like to sit there and drill the part to get it right? So mix of sitting down or standing up. I've done both, especially if there's not enough seating, I'm forced to stand up, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, you're playing standing up on stage. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. So playing standing up is definitely advantageous in that way is it's a more realistic recreation of your performance. Sometimes I just want to sit down and that's okay too. But standing up is more advantageous for sure. I never play the whole song very rarely. It's very much targeting the specific parts because if there's just a part with power chords that you can play in your sleep, I don't even want to think about it or waste my time on it. I just want to spend every second I have my, you know, practice set up just being efficient and working on the things I know need to be worked on. And there's definitely some noodling too, like just getting loose, just making sure the left and right hands are working the way they're supposed to be and they don't feel tight and bad. Tight and bad, the two bad things. If you move like that, you're never going to play the set. <laughs> so what's an example of a kind of part that has fucked you up a lot? So they're more often than not guitar solos. And for anyone that's been to a show in the audience, for most metal bands, if you try to listen to the rhythm guitar, you can't really hear it or make it out. But if you listen to the lead guitar and there's like a big soaring note that's wrong, you're going to hear that. So it's usually guitar solos since those are for sure, I think, what people will notice more. If you like mess up a chord change, you know, the music I play is very dense. So all the rhythm guitar parts should be nailed. But I don't think people really hear if they aren't. Not that I would ever advocate for that. No, but you got to prioritize, I guess, right? Yeah. The, the thing that people are going to hear if it's absolutely wrong is what I prioritize. One solo that I feel very good about now, but I felt horrible about for years, is the solo that's on a Nail the Mix, Bearing and Breathless Macrocosm. That solo has a lot of very essential uh, pick slanty moments where if you don't have your picking sequence right, everything just falls apart completely and utterly. On that note, first of all, that song, Still, like I said, I was refreshing the discography and man, that fucking opening riff, back to what we were saying before, that riff doesn't matter when you wrote it, it's always going to be sick as fuck. But what I've noticed with playing solos live, and I've talked about this on Riff Hard a lot, one of the hardest things about playing guitar is switching gears from one thing to the next. So you're playing rhythms and then jumping into a solo that's doing just completely different stuff, different string sets, different part of the fretboard, different feel, different sound, just like different, completely different. You have to completely shift how you're playing and how you're thinking. And I've noticed that just that alone, not even talking about the mechanics of the solo itself, but just the switching into it fucks a lot of people up. And then that sets them off on the wrong path to begin with. Does that ever present a challenge for you? Yes. Um, but when I 
figured out solutions for pretty early on. I definitely am trying to tailor the way I write the rhythms a little more to this, but I, I'm not perfect about it. But I do kind of, if I'm about to go into a solo and the end of the last rhythm guitar part has more notes to be played, those notes do not always make it in. <laughs> Sometimes I give myself a second and I kind of end off on a good root note before the solo. So it does not sound like the record, the measure, or like the beat or two before the solo starts. I do kind of, unless say it uh, truly was written in a way where it's very easy and comfortable for me to do. But Burn and Breathless Macrocosm, for example, is a song where I do need to stop the rhythm guitar beat early so I get into the solo on time the way it needs to be. And I really don't find myself switching to the neck pickup very often. I don't think the bridge pickup ruins the sound of too much. I found for that particular solo, it does benefit from the neck pickup a little bit because you get more of the Petrucci tone, which sometimes is desirable. But yeah, I usually play all my solos on bridge and it's it's less forgiving, but it feels more honest. You hear uh, some stuff a little better. In a way. So talking about the pick slanting part, how you approach these alternate picked fast passages, if you don't start them the right way and you don't slant the pick properly, you will get yourself backwards to almost like an unrecoverable condition. Yes. Let's just say that that's the problem in the solo. So will you just loop the part, that particular run you're talking about, or will you loop into the run and out of the run? Whatever has to be done, uh, probably a combination of all three. It's obviously important to first diagnose if and where you're tripping up. So if I just can't do the run itself, then I have to practice the run itself. If I get tripped up transitioning between the run into the next part, I have to do that. But it's, yeah, it's very important that I target the problems and focus on them when I'm practicing. So yeah, sometimes I play the whole solo a lot of times there's like parts of the solo that are easier. So I'll actually skip those and just go to the next hard part of the solo. But I try to spend every second on something that's going to make me sound better. No wasted time with it. I try not to. Obviously, I'll get distracted sometimes and I will waste time. It's human nature, but I, I try not to. I find that for me personally, if I don't play what's coming before, and after, I don't feel like I've got the part. Yep, it's very important. Because like I could sit there and isolate it, and that's great for recording. But even in recording, you still kind of got to play into it and out of it for it to not sound disjointed. Right. Gus G was talking about this on his episode. Uh, Bill Hudson, too. Like when they find a trouble spot in a solo, like whatever it could be, like going into a fast run or it's some string skip or just whatever it is they will isolate the moment where the problem starts because you know it's always between one note to the next they'll isolate the exact part where the problem begins and like add a, two notes after it and two notes before it and just do a loop of just that thing just that thing that causes the problem until it's no longer a problem. Then they start expanding outwards. So then they'll add another measure after it and another measure before it. And then once that's good, then another measure after another before. And then eventually you're looping 
the whole trouble spot and going into it and it's no longer a problem spot. Yeah, I think that's exactly what should be done. And I suppose to elaborate, isolating the section that's given the most trouble, I still think is important. But like you said, after you can play that, then you expand upon that and add the stuff before and after. Now you know you can play the run. Now do you know you can play in and out of the run in relation to the rest of the song? In a different way, you know, so many of us that write riffs and play metal, always kind of writing just a hair out of reach. You know what I mean? And I think that it's an age-old thing. I remember reading an interview with Petrucci in the 90s saying that he always wrote stuff out of his range and then the challenge would be to learn how to do it by recording. So I'm just wondering if you have any particular types of skill building in mind when you're writing songs. And the reason I'm wondering about it in a songwriting capacity is because when you're on tour and you're practicing something that you biffed, that part is set in stone. You know exactly what it's supposed to be. It's been recorded. You played it a million times. There's no like room for interpretation. You either play it right or play it wrong. When you're working on a song that hasn't been recorded yet and it's a little bit above your skill level, it's not really set in stone, right? Like it could still change. You don't know what you're actually totally working on. So do you have any any ways to build the skills towards those songs that are slightly above your ability, keeping in mind that they're not concrete songs yet? Well, I guess the first thing to establish is just why I would even do that. And for me, I know that I'm more creative not worrying about if I can play it right that moment because if I'm doing only stuff I know I can play at that moment, I'm rehashing and recycling more and using a lot of the same shapes and patterns that I have ingrained in my muscle memory. And by doing outside my wheelhouse, I'm building and expanding those shapes and patterns that I don't have yet. And to determine whether it's worth it, it's kind of like critical listening. Like you listen through and everything is like a little hard and then you encounter something that's like especially crazy, impossibly hard. And you wonder if I just adjust this one thing about it and it makes a lot easier, doesn't make it sound a lot worse, does it no longer do what it's supposed to do? Or can I add that comfort and also have it sound just as good? So those are, you know, some questions I ask. That's an important question because... The way that you play a riff, you know, down to what position, what you're palm muting, what you're not, all the little details, they make all the difference in the world. However, there are some things you can change out that will not make an effective difference, meaning it's not going to make it better or worse. It's going to make it easier to play. But then there's stuff that definitely, if you adjust it, you're going to fuck up the way the riff feels. And it feels great, even if it's hard to play. You just got to learn how to play it this difficult way. Yes, absolutely. I work with Sheet Happens a lot. If you're familiar with them, they help oh, yeah. artists make tab books. And I read a foreword that uh, JB August Burns Red did, and I thought it was very interesting. And I have to start saying that. Is he was saying, not verbatim, but he was like, the fingerings and positions in this book may change over time as we play these songs live, something like that. So as you know, the guitar, there's multiple ways to play the same note. 
And when I, you know, make the tab book, I mostly remember what I did when recording and try to get everything true to that. But just because I record it that way, if I spend more time with it, I realize, oh, if I just fingered it this way, it's actually makes way more sense and way easier. And if it's low string versus the second lowest string, that drastically changes the timbre of the note. But if it's like just a string apart and one of the other strings, it doesn't really sound too different. There's many factors that'll change the sound of your timbre and stuff, but it can be worth reimagining your fingering again. And I've done that in this process. We're talking about drilling solos. I've realized that just choosing a different fingering or position can um, make everything a lot more comfortable without making it sound different. You know, it's too bad that you can't tour for a year off an album you have yet to record because you'll never play the songs better than after playing them live for a while. Yes, exactly. So of course it's going to change from when you recorded it after playing it live. You're just going to be so much better at the song. Actually on Riff Hard videos I've made, I talk about this too. Like the way I'm playing it in the video might not be the way I play it in six months. It might not be the way I play it next week because I'm constantly looking for a better way to play it. And guitar, it's not like piano where every note appears once. I'm sure there's multiple ways to do things on the piano, but still every note is there once. Yes. Guitar is this weird grid that makes no sense where notes appear like six different ways. And there's so many different ways to go about everything to think that just because you figured out a way to play something and that's the way you recorded it, that that's the perfect way. You're leaving a lot of potential improvement on the table, in my opinion. Yes. And that's reminds me of a very funny slash interesting uh, conversation I had with my dad back when Currents did the first album. He was, you know, saw we at our album out and he said, don't you think you would play the songs? You know, the songs would sound a lot better if you had gotten to like rehearse them live first for, you know, a year or something. And I pretty much told him something effective, well, everything's edited to be perfect, so no. And he said something like, well, just because it's perfect doesn't mean it's compelling or something. And I mean, he definitely has a point, but I mean, there's many reasons why it's not that way. And one is that um, if you have your live songs out before your studio songs, then people's impression of the song is just poor quality YouTube videos when they can have high fidelity audio recordings off of Spotify. There's a myriad of reasons why things aren't that way. But uh, what you're talking about is one reason why maybe it shouldn't be that way. Is your dad a musician? Yeah, you know, more classical jazz. Ah, okay, cool. Because mine too, no pun intended, but that's a very wise statement. Yes. Uh, just because it's perfect doesn't mean it's compelling. Like I've been trying to figure out a way to explain that to people because I feel like it's a very cliche thing to say, when it's all edited to the grid, you take the life out of it, blah, 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 which I don't think is always true. You hear a lot of people always saying that edited stuff is uh, lifeless and edited to be perfect, blah, 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 it kills the music. I don't buy that. I think it can, but I don't think that that's what's causing it. I think that if you're editing something to the point where it sounds lifeless, you got to ask yourself, what were you putting in that had to be edited in a way to where the only way it would sound passable is lifeless. In my experience, usually the reason that 
it can end up like that is because what you input it in, it wasn't there. Yeah. It is possible to take a great performance and take some life out of it for sure. So you got to be careful. But if the drummer has a certain kind of feel, you got to be careful to not kill that feel. That is the possibility. However, that's more rare. I think more often what happens is people record shit they're not ready to record. And so what they're giving the engineer, what they're putting into the computer doesn't have life to begin with. And so the only choice is to basically build it like Legos and you're not going to add life in that process. It didn't have life to begin with. Legoing it up is not going to add life to it. So I think actually the way your dad put it is great because there's something that happens after playing it a bunch and you can kind of simulate this in the practice room too by looping a riff. If you loop a riff for like 15 minutes and you get past the point of boredom, there will come a point where your mind starts wandering. There will come a point where you start to get tired. If you go past all of that, there'll come this point where you lock in with the riff and the feel of it where it just gets better. It's like in your DNA almost. Yes. I used to do this when I was recording people a lot. If they weren't ready for something, I'd be like, here's a click. I'll be back in 15 minutes, loop just this. And the difference between how they would play it, it's night and day. And yeah, you could still do some editing and punching and all the stuff, but the musicality in it is on such another level. And I think that that's what you bring to the table by playing the song over and over on tour. It's like the how of it is just much more fluid and musical and actually in you. So I think... That is what makes it compelling. But I don't think that it's the perfect editing that makes it lifeless. I think the fact that people are recording stuff that's not ready. Yeah. And that's, you know, the question is, were the songs ready when we thought they were ready? Or would they have been more ready a year down the line? And then you pull the cost-benefit analysis and you say, well, maybe they would be more ready in a year, but there's also a cost to not putting this out for another year. And the cost might be we're another year away from writing even better songs. And these songs are like still really good. And we will benefit from having these songs out where they're at as well. I guess you never know. You kind of just got to do what you think you should do, right? I'm with you though on the cost benefit analysis. The songs are what they are when you go to record and you just got to accept it. Yes, of course, they could be better. If we lived in a universe where time was not a dimension, things would be different, right? But time is a dimension and we don't have much of it. So we got to get on with things and have to get comfortable with the fact that, yeah, if you were to work on this forever, it could get infinitely better. But hey, infinity and forever don't factor into our lives. And so you do your best to get it as good as you possibly can by the date that you got to record it. And then that's it. Yep. You got to move. I see this criticism from so many you know, larger names, whether it be M Shadows, Mike Shinoda, or even tons of people I tour with is they give this advice of like, people need to write better songs. In theory, yes, writing better songs is exactly what needs to happen. But who is to say when the song isn't good, I feel like it's the writer of the song ultimately decides if they like the song. I'm sure that's what they would all say too, is the song is good when the people that made the song think it's good and critics will be critics, but it's hard to say what's right. It's really just show up and do your best, you know? Go up and do your best. Cause I agree with them. Obviously better songs are the answer, but you don't know when you're writing or recording 
or delivering a song if anyone's going to care. No one ever knows that. And we all know, I'm sure you've experienced a song you wrote in a night. We've all heard of famous songs that were written in like an hour or whatever. Well, also songs that were written over the course of two years and everything in between. But I have definitely experienced writing a song in an hour that ended up being one that does really, really well for me. And I have plenty of friends that their biggest song was something that they came up with in an afternoon. And so the question then is like, what do you mean by you got to write better songs? It's like, you can't possibly know this song is a hit. Like you don't know. Yeah. You got to go with your gut and hope for the best. Yeah. And you also see my numbers are going to be way off here, but Guns N' Roses or Tool or something like that takes like 10 years or more to write their next album. And then it comes out and people are just like, eh. and like their greatest work they've ever done was made in like a year or something like that. Just an example. I know my numbers are probably completely wrong, but you know, the point stands. Well, the time devoted to writing something isn't indicative of how good it's going to be always. I think what we were talking about earlier is the time devoted to playing it. That's different. Like, obviously, the more you play something, the better you're going to get. But the more you fuck with the writing of a song, that does not mean it's going to get better. There's definitely some songs that need a lot of massaging and a lot of building. And there are just some songs that they take a long time. But there are other songs that do not take a long time. And they came out just about perfect the first time. And by fucking with them more, you're going to hurt them. I feel like there's no real time to quality ratio that's reliable when it comes to writing. Right. I guess specifically my point is if someone's process to writing includes playing it in a room with their band. And it's not just arranging things on a computer like me. It's some bands, you know, will get together in a room and play the song together. Oh, yeah. And that's part of their writing. I haven't done that since high school. It's definitely still a valid way to do things. And to, you know, the point of playing it more can improve the song. That's one reason why that might be the case. Do some of our friends do that? And I am blown away. Arkspire do that. Yeah, Arkspire. Okay, so I know Suicide Silence do that. And that makes perfect sense. I feel like for Suicide Silence to feel right, it's got to be played in a room. And that's the only way you can know if those songs are working, really. That's very much like their sound. That all makes sense to me. Arkspire, I have a hard time wrapping my head around how that's written in person like that. Right. That it sounds exactly like the kind of music that would be written on a computer. And if I'm not mistaken, they have started doing that more than they used to. But even... When they were 100% that, it still sounded uh, like that's not something you write in a room with people. Partly because what we were talking about earlier, like you can't hear rhythm guitar that well when there's all that stuff happening on top of it, as well as you could hear it mixed in a record. If you're in a practice space, Spencer Pruitt is blasting and Dean and Toby are doing whatever on the rhythm side, I feel like you're mostly just going to hear the blasting. Yeah, it it seems chaotic, but their music does not sound like chaos to me. It's like perfectly written. They've got it figured out. <laughs> They've got it figured out. And again, to contrast that, the Suicide Silence thing, I feel like you could write that stuff on a computer, but you'll never know if it feels right. This is just my impression as an outsider without 
hearing those guys play it in a room because those riffs, they need that kind of power. I feel like that's how you would know if it's worthy of them. Definitely. Yeah. But those riffs are a lot more simple, right? So they play at tempos and they play a style of riffs where the rhythm guitar won't get as lost as with Arcspire. I mean, so here's the thing about metal. Metal shouldn't sound good. Metal is organized noise. It's basically crafted noise. And left to its own devices, it pretty much sounds like shit, which is why most shows sound like shit. Most rehearsals sound like shit. It is really tough to get metal to sound good. So if you're fighting the natural state of metal, which is shit, while you're trying to write, that's a lot to contend with, I think. Yeah, I think... It was Varg or one of those other black metal figureheads. He specifically said something along the lines, I paraphrase again, if my parents like my music, then I didn't do a good job. <laughs> That's an interesting artistic mindset is uh, just sound as abrasive as possible and you don't want people to get it. It's purely expression and not meant to be enjoyed per se at least by not everyone when it comes to actually making a career from metal it's a weird thing because you're talking about this music that did start as outsider music and in lots of ways it still is it's not like the soundtrack of a normie's life and the topics involved it's all just dark and just some terrible shit basically is kind of like the what metal music is all about thematically, a bunch of noise that's like crafted, it's like angry, it's dark, evil, etc. all those things. What a strange thing to make a career off of and to have to contextualize in a professional way. Yeah. Which you do. You have to if you're going to make it a career. Yeah. It almost doesn't make sense. Well, so you have to kind of take it apart again and say, well, what about what I'm doing could anyone possibly find appealing? And you start with, well, what do I find appealing about it? And one, for some, not every band, it's like a technical prowess thing. You're like, this is impressive and perhaps even compelling to watch and consume and imagine or witness someone playing these things. Two, you resonate with the energy it creates. Probably that above all, I think everyone could agree is... You listen to music because the way it makes you feel and the way metal makes me feel, at least when metal's done right, is it's very exciting. Again, like the depressive doom black metal doesn't really have that. It kind of exerts a different feeling of drony despair or whatever you feel from it. But for a lot of the stuff I like, I guess it's a little faster maybe. You know, there's some excitement that uh, I think... Can we make other people feel as excited as we feel from this? And that's kind of where the career starts is we want people to feel as excited by this as we do. How do we achieve that? And how do you achieve that? Number one is you kind of need to have good taste. And I guess good taste in one sense of the word is if you know something's good, then you know other people are going to think it's good too. I don't know if that is a very good definition of good taste, but I'll, I'll pick it as my definition. That's great. That's actually what I tell producers on URM. You got to develop your tastes. That's your guide. 
Yeah. That's all you got. And that's kind of how you do it. And from there, you, you know, you craft sonically all your tones and how that everything plays with each other, interacts with each other. That's kind of your, like your mix. And then from there, how do you monetize such a thing in a time where the sale of a CD or a record is no longer essential? People can now listen to the music on the internet for pretty much no cost to them. You know, you can get a subscription to a service, but streaming in many cases, you have to listen or watch an ad and then it's just free to consume the music. So from there, streaming revenue can add up eventually, especially if you opt out of doing deals with people that will take all your streaming revenue from you, separate store. You know, there's the merchandise side and there's the ticket sales side. And if you go on a tour, then you have 20, 30, 40 days to maximize your merchandise and ticket sales. And that's kind of what the music industry has turned into. <laughs> but, you know, M Shadows and Co., they're right. At the end of the day, if people don't like your songs, none of that matters. Exactly. It's all true. It's all true statements. I'm sure you get asked for advice all the time. I do all the time. And how long of an answer I'm going to give just depends on what's going on that day. What kind of mood am I in? Am I tired? So, you know, there's a long answer and there's a short answer. But the short answer at the end of the day is write stuff people like. Because then everything else comes from that. You don't have to think of crafty shit or build some crafty infrastructure or anything like that if you have songs that people like and are attracted to because those structures are already built. And if you have stuff that people like, then you can utilize these infrastructures that already exist. But if you don't have stuff people like, none of that stuff matters. No marketing, no features, no paid ads. It's not going to matter. Exactly. So you mentioned that off the road, you do production work with a lot of bands and artists. And one, Harper, was on America's Got Talent. Yes. And you did the first single off their first record. How did you get hooked up with that? So Harper's dad is named Ben Lumber from the band Acres. And he just happened to be a fan of Currents. And he messaged me and said, hey, my daughter... He's doing YouTube covers. We're thinking of transitioning her into like doing songs and being, you know, an artist. I said, that sounds cool. I checked out, you know, she had a YouTube video for covering Spirit Box. It was getting decent traction and more or less wanted something in the vein of Spirit Box because I think that's who Harper really looks up to. And we did it and he more or less approved you know, what I initially sent, didn't hear for a while. And then a few months later, I see him posting these America's Got Talent videos and Simon from American Idol was doing it. And who, and I, you know, known of him since I was in middle school. So to see those worlds collide was pretty insane. And she passed at least one of the rounds. I saw Simon notorious for being negative, gave her the thumbs up. It's awesome. Yeah, she just screamed on TV. People really liked it. And then the song eventually came out. They got picked up by a management label. She like performed on stage with Spirit Box. And yeah, it seems like everyone was really impressed by the song. So it was really cool to do something different like that. 
And at the end of the day, it came down to somebody being a fan of your work. Yeah, that's how, that's how a lot of <laughs> stuff has happened, it seems. I think that's how most things in music, especially production, happen, is people hire producers and mixers based off of the stuff they've heard them do. Yes. You know, this comes up a lot, like, uh, how do I get more clients? How do I get better bands to hire me to mix? It's like, well, they got to like your work. Again, kind of like you got to have songs that people like. Well, as a producer and a mixer, people have to like your work. That is the only reason that they're going to hit you up. There's no amount of advertising or viral content you can make that will actually make a legit project hire you. It's always going to be based off of your work and your reputation. I'm just not surprised they were a fan of Currents. Yep, makes sense. It's how this always works. And it even goes one step beyond that is, are they a fan of your work? Are they more a fan of your work than all the other options they have? Slash, do they even know there are other options or have you made it apparent that you're already a good option or that you're an option at all before other people have. Those are just two things to consider. So the first one we'll call competition. There are many options, which one is the best option. And two is just, I guess, marketing or information is like, do you even know what all the options are that you can pick from? And has someone done a better job of showing that they're an option at all? I guess when you're talking about producer and mixer, do you have a minute to Google the record, look at the credits, or how much music you even do research on at all? I guess I'm just kind of used to that stuff. So I don't actually remember what it's like to not do that. Well, I think bands that are hiring producers do that. Because I remember recording local bands, and they always wanted somebody's sound. Yes. Like a Joey Sturgis sound or a Will Putney sound or whatever. Bands that are looking to record at any level know who they want to record with because they know who their favorite bands work with. And lots of times their favorite bands and their favorite records get done by the same person or the same group of people. And I do think that serious bands are always looking into this. It's always based on prior work. And I think that if someone has no real prior work, the best thing they could possibly do is uh, put out their own work. Yeah. Because you can't make a local band good. I mean, if the local band is good, you can get them to sound good, but you can't make a shitty local band sound good. You could make your own music sound good if you have full control over it. And that could be a very compelling thing to get people to give you a shot when there's not really much else to base giving you a shot off of. Yeah. I think there's actually a third rule I left out and this is lower than the other two, but I still think it's important is if you produce one good record, you may have just gotten lucky, but if you have two things or three things, then you make the case that it's not a coincidence and it becomes more of a no-brainer. And for me, it's part of why I do two bands is just I want to know that it's not like a coincidence, I guess. Not a fluke. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean, and it works the opposite way too, right? Like if a mixer is known for great work and then they put out something bad, like a mix that's just not up to par for them, but like everything else they did is great. My first impression is that's the band's fault. It's probably a miracle 
that it even sounds this good because I've heard this person's work, which is incredible. And this is just barely passable. They were probably handed a nightmare and they had to spend all their time getting it to where it even sounds like anything at all. And so the fact that it even sounds like this is a testament to how great they are. But the only reason I would think that is based on a body of work that's already awesome. Yes, absolutely. If you still want to give them a chance, that's when you like do one song, a single before you commit to the whole album, shop around a little bit. But for, you know, Christian Donaldson, in my case, Ingested was really, I think, what sold me on what he was doing. But wanted to do a single first before I knew and he nailed it yet again. So, you know, it's not a coincidence and that guy knows what he's doing. That's a real good way to do it is to do singles with people. Yeah. Because there's more to it than just how it sounds. It's like, what's it like to work with the person? Are you on the same page? Was it a fight to get it to how it sounds or were they already kind of like on your wavelength? What did it take to get this finished? I think that's really, really important too, because whenever you're talking about this level of mixer that I guess me or you would hire, we're talking about the best in metal. Anyone will make a point for who their favorite is, but these dudes are all awesome. Yeah. So the question is, are you guys on the same wavelength, artistically, personally, vision-wise? Like, What's it like working together? And an album is a huge commitment to uh, just jump in bed with someone without having any idea of how it's going to go. Yeah, money aside, everything gets pushed back. If you're not the one, however much time you spend doing revisions or trying to get stuff right, I mean, the budget's actually pretty important. But the time and money that goes into it and to have them not be the right one can be catastrophic. So you really want to have that figured out before you get too deep into it. Yeah, we just did a single with Christian. He's great. Yeah. Absolutely. I love his work with your band. He's figured out how to get everything very big. Yeah, he has a has a very, very specific sound, which is modern and big, but then also like uh, legit. Yes, still metal, not a... Not plastic. Yes, good word. You also worked with Dave Otero on the latest Shadow single, who is also incredible. Their work sounds completely different, but he also has like a modern big sound that still sounds metal, not plastic. It's interesting because you're talking about two dudes that are both amazing. And on paper, you would say that it could check the same boxes, but it's totally different. I'm curious, what was it like for you working with uh, Dave? So going into it, I've you know met him a few times. The first time meeting him was actually at your summit. He was teaching that course with uh with dean he told me a little later but he like alluded that barren and breathless macrocosm the song nail the mix is also a song in his reference mix pool i guess in his ab software that's one of the things he sonically compares what he's doing to so that's you know a very cool compliment and it also suggests that he like is on the same wavelength but i i definitely know him as you are the cattle decap Arcspire guy that's gotten there to how it sounds right now. I'm not super familiar with his entire body of work, but that's, I believe, is the forefront of what he does. And that stuff is a little different from what we're doing. So I think he really went outside his wheelhouse and very much impressed me because I guess specifically 
this song, we we do some lower tunings and we do want a little thicker. It's less about the speed maybe than those bands and more about, I'll use the word the chunk. We'll call it the chunk. I don't know if that's... The chunk. Yeah. We know what that means. It's not something I've seen him do a lot. He's probably worked with a million bands and I haven't heard that stuff from him yet. But going into it, what I did know was our vocalist was very particular about his vocal mix and was very impressed by the cattle decapitation vocal mix. And I think he was very happy that that got achieved. And then on, you know, the instrumental end, I feel like, I don't know if I'd say I have high standards, but I have specific standards and Dave absolutely met and exceeded those. I think he got everything exactly where it needed to be. So can't really uh, praise that guy enough. He's actually more diverse than people realize because it's a common thing to think of him as an Arkspire cattle guy, especially in our world. But like, for instance, he also does bands like that band Tetrarch. That's like radio, new metal-ish kind of stuff. Okay. And he got it sounding huge. I think he's actively trying to get people to realize that he's more than just the tech death guy, even though he's great at that. Right. I think there's kind of three kinds of producers. I mean, I'm sure there's much more, but um, the first we'll call one trick ponies. They have like their settings and samples that they gravitate towards. And you know exactly what you're going to get going into it. You're going to get their sound. Yep. There's the guys that do a lot of different stuff, but they're not like a specialist. They don't do any of it super great. And then there's the guys that really just know what they're doing. That's Dave. Seems to know his stuff very well. Jeff Dunn as well. He's done such like a variety of stuff at this point. He just did Disturbed in addition to the Currents record. You know, just being able to go from Disturbed to this other radio rock to Chelsea Grin and make them suffer. It's kind of cool too. So I guess there's a spectrum. I'm not going to limit it to three, but the point is Dave's an expert. (laughs) The thing about the One Trick Ponies though is they're also awesome. The thing is, because I've known a few, I have worked with one and I wasn't stoked because it sounded like the dude's other stuff. Yeah. But he was really good at that. Yeah. My mistake was going to him because if you don't want that, you don't go to that person. Right. So it's kind of like almost like they are an artist. Right. Yep. And they do this thing. And if you want that thing, you go to them. But if you have another kind of vision that is not really about their thing, do not go to them. It's not going to come out the way you want. Right. I think I am a one-trick pony fan a lot of the time because I make a song and it has my touch on it. And I ask myself, now what do I want this to sound like from here? And if someone's already doing something that I think will sound really good with what I'm doing then I treat it as like a collaboration. Like, let's get your sound and my sound and mix them together. And I know that's what we're going to get. And I've worked with what we'll call One Trick Pony. Also like very good at what he does. But um, I did pretty much get the snare sample that's on all his records. But I love how it sounds and I love how it sounds on my stuff. So I feel like maybe it wasn't completely unique, all uniquely dialed settings, but it was what I went into it wanting and expecting. And what yes, I thought. exactly. So it's not a bad thing. If what you want aligns with what that person is like best at, then that's great. Yeah. And 
some of the biggest mixers in the world are that because there's entire styles of music that popped up because of their work with one or two bands and then a bunch more bands followed suit and went to them for that thing. And that became the thing that they did. Entire genres have been spawned off of the one trick pony types. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's just something to be aware of as an artist. If you're going to a mixer, make sure that you know what they do and that what they do is in line with what you want. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier, like do your research, listen to multiple bodies of work, not just one to make sure they weren't just lucky. And if you hear whether it be one is good and the rest are trash or they're all good, but good because they all have the same mix, just be aware. Oh, if all their records sound the same, then don't ask them for something else. Ask them for that because that's clearly what they know how to do. And I think... Some of the records that I feel like I haven't liked, I can kind of tell either the band asked them to or they tried doing something that wasn't their specialty and they just weren't great at it, at least not yet at the time, and it didn't sound as good. Yeah, totally. So you're beginning to be able to be more selective about the projects you take on. How much of a relief is that and do you find yourself gravitating towards any particular style? I'm talking production-wise. Yeah. I haven't quite figured out what I would gravitate towards a style. I kind of am. I'll go into that. But definitely something I have to like it more. And if I really just don't like it, I'm going to try maybe not to do it. And part of it, you know, the selectivity outside of the touring schedule is every time I take a project, I'm not working on my own stuff. With two bands, that's twice the stuff I'm not working on. So, yeah, it's definitely a bigger cost to working on production now. It's got to be selective. Yeah. But, yeah, some of the stuff I have kind of enjoyed, I guess stuff that's, like, pretty heavy. I guess I like heavy music. Big surprise. Yeah, music that, like, has more ambient styles. There's heavy, ambient, modern type stuff. Living the dream, though. Two big bands and starting to be able to be selective with studio clients, that's uh, it's winning. Yeah, it feels very nice, but I know there's still a long way to go. Do you get the uh, the terror ever? Like, this is built on a house of cards feeling because music is built on a house of cards? Yeah, as in anything can collapse at any moment. Yes. Oh, yeah. You know, that's also like why I've diversified so much is anything could happen to anyone at any time. So what do I have control over? I have control over what my skill sets are. That's like the biggest one in my networks of people. I have control over that. So can I maximize both those things? You know, just working with a lot of different people, touring with a lot of different people, and also keeping busy and refining what I can do makes me feel a little bit better about it. And our mutual friend, Doc Coyle, his whole premise of the X-Men is literally that, like people that their house of cards has collapsed but they took some time to invest in their skill sets and their networks and they have figured out what to do. He is the shining example of that. And I don't think Bad Wolves had even became active when he started the podcast. They were like just no. beginning. So it's it's kind of ironic that uh, 
he wasn't that when he started it, but he became that as it was happening. No, but the thing is, I've known him for a while, and he always has been the dude who is going for it and is not limiting himself to just one thing, like multiple irons in the fire. One thing doesn't work out, back with the next. Yeah. And not getting too hung up over something not working out. Yeah. And just keeping on moving forward. Yeah. Corey Taylor, obvious one. He's got like three bands. He's got a solo band, Stone Sour Slipknot. But um, Jamie Josta, I don't know either of them personally, but seeing him do solo band, hate breed, podcaster, and like songwriter producer, he just produced Corpse Grinder solo album, which I never expected. I had no idea those two like knew each other. I guess I didn't pay enough attention, but I heard him, you know, talking about it. And uh, that's, you know, quite the Renaissance man right there too. I feel like if you're lucky enough to be able to do well off of one band, more power to you, but it could all collapse if we have friends that that's happened to. Yes. And I think that the modern way of making it work in music is a diversification of income streams. Yeah. The quote unquote same thing for me to do is like stop, focus on one thing and just pace yourself a little bit. But yeah, the house of cards thing is always in the other side of my brain saying, uh, oh, if you stop and one thing collapses, then you're screwed, man. So <laughs> don't stop yet. So just out of curiosity, I feel like we alluded to this on the previous podcast. I feel like this is something that could have changed in the past couple of years. Sure. Your writing approach for your two bands, what's it like these days? So, yeah, one thing that has changed, this is a pretty big change. I used to always say, if I'm on a six string, I'm writing for show intent. If I'm on a seven string, I'm writing for currents. And I think I finally hit the point where that has felt stale to me. So the new Currents album has two six string songs on it for the first time. And the Shadow Intense stuff I'm working on, I, I am experimenting with some more seven string stuff. So that's a big thing because, you know, people have asked me, when you sit down, do you decide what you're writing for at that time? And I'm like... Well, yeah, it's actually pretty simple for me now. If I'm writing for Currents, I pull up the, the template with a Modern and Massive. And if I have Shadow and Ten, it's the Invasion template. So <laughs> that's actually a pretty simple uh, distinguisher right there. But yeah, other than that, it's pretty similar. Guitars, keyboards, drums, bass, all in the door. And I send it to the band. Ben from Shadow and Ten, he either says like, holy shit, this is awesome. Or he points out like one little thing. But you know. He's never like a huge dick about it, but it'll just sounds like radio rock or sounds like this thing I know he doesn't like. And yeah, he's he's never mean about it. But once he says that, I'm like, well, this song's in the garbage. <laughs> so every once in a while I get someone to like buy a song or I'll like use some of it for someone else's project. But usually people want something like super heavy and a lot of the stuff that doesn't make it in a show intent is usually the less heavy stuff I'm realizing. You know, the stuff that's overly melodic, Ben doesn't really gravitate towards. He really wants some um, aggression that um, I'm slowly working into the music a little more. With Currents, I'll send it. Everyone will be like, this is sick, usually. And then if Brian never writes to it, then it 
just never comes out. And if he does, it might come out. I like that feedback method. I, I kind of have a similar thing where I send something to the dudes. I'm either going to get fuck yeah or crickets. Yep. Or I'd like to hear it when it's developed. Yeah. Okay. You don't like it. Moving on. Yeah. No one in my band has ever been like, this isn't your best. You've done better. Or even this sucks. Usually it's like positive or little to nothing. I can hear that there's some ideas in here. Yeah. But that means they don't like it. Yeah. I have this mentality of if there is a question, there is no question. If there's any question about their reaction to it, no question. They don't like it. Yep. I just jump straight to that and it's like, okay, I'm just going to work on a new one. And I've noticed that's very easy for me to do on a emotional, psychological level because I know I can just sit down and make another one. But I think that's tough for some people and I think they should learn to get comfortable with it because you get better by writing more songs and you get better by learning how to work with the people you're working with better and by not forcing them into uncomfortable situations. So if you have a bandmate who is conflict adverse, the avoidant type, right? Does not want to get into a fight, does not want to be aggressive, does want to hurt your feelings. You don't want to push them to where they have to get that way because then they might be a dick because you've made them feel uncomfortable they don't know how to communicate that kind of thing. So you got to learn to read the cues. And like for some people who are conflict adverse, they might just not say anything or say the smallest thing like, a, sounds like radio rock or whatever. You got to understand what that means and be cool with it. Yeah. And I think at this point in working, doing this many albums, if they don't like it, I kind of listen back and try to imagine their vocals. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this would never have worked. What was I thinking? I know what not to do again next time. And it makes my output a little lower because I have to, like, narrow my scope and the inspiration is less readily. But that also means the stuff that I do write, it's more likely to go somewhere. So that stuff is always good and it's a good learning experience. So you're writing more specifically for the situation. Yes. I think it's a very important thing to do. You're not, you're not writing for some fantasy band. You're writing for the band that you're in. Yeah, exactly. Or either band that you're in. Right, right. So last thing I want to talk about before I uh, let you go are tours, man. Coming up and before, how's that been going? Yeah. I'm curious, just because you see some concert pictures that are like, whoa, there are a lot of people here for a band that back in the day did not draw holy shit, concert attendance is nuts. Then you're hearing from people that big bands are barely even breaking even on successful tours. Then you're hearing about bands with zero draw that always used to have a draw and all these other things like inability to get road crew, just crazy shit going on. But it seems like your tours have been going well and the one coming up is doing well. So I'm just curious, what's your take? How's shit going? Yeah, everything... As far as I'm concerned, it's been really good. Earlier this year, Shadow Intent headlined Europe, and we sold out like 80% of the shows. Fucking badass. It was super badass. We felt on top of the world for sure. And we got lucky. We got our friend Mello to do front of house and tour managing. He's incredible. He wasn't going to be available, but then his schedule opened up. So he helped everything go extremely well. Everyone was sounding good. And, you know, costs are higher than ever, but 
we don't take on costs that we don't think we need to be part of the budget. What do you mean by that? If you're taking more crew than you need or you're taking two tour buses instead of one or... Just being smart with your expenditures. Yeah, because I think, you know, everyone that arena level that's saying they're not making money on tours, they're breaking even on tours, they can't deny that they're gross revenue they're getting is insanely high, like millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they're just also choosing to have millions and millions and millions of dollars of expenses. And at that level, sometimes they are necessary. Sometimes they aren't and they have to have little quality of life production, whether it be they have to string their own guitars or something even crazier than that. Like there's so many crew you can add on. It's kind of crazy. I saw an interview with Muse where they were being super candid recently. And I'm sure they make money. So I'm sure they're not one of those bands that are losing money, but their productions are insane. How do you pull that off in this day and age? And they were like, by hemorrhaging cash. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. My mantra is um, spend all your guarantees on your expenses and then merch is how you make your actual profit. And, you know, whether it be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of merch, you can still make money. The Parkway Drive tour Currents did was also very impressive. You know, they had two tour buses and a semi-truck for all their production. And in Europe, they do an even bigger one because, you know, they draw 10,000 people or whatever every show. Something crazy like that. Lorna Shore, the tour show intent just got off of. Also pretty incredible. They're in like kind of a growing pains phase. They're taking tour bus out for the first time. And those guys are all down to earth. Like they would be fine going out in a van, taking front of house guy, merch guy out with them and just rolling with that. But um, there are costs to not having the crew too that um, overall... You know, the quality of life improvements can make the show better and add sustainability to the band and improve the perception of the band as well. You know, to see them traveling in the tour bus, you know, all these tours, Parkway, Lorna, and answer your question, they're doing extremely well. The current headliner that's about to happen, we're hoping for a mostly sold out tour on that. So from my perspective, there are a lot of bands selling a lot of tickets more than I've ever seen. The bands I'm not even touring with, I just see the pictures. Obviously, there are the bands that uh, don't have a lot of people coming to their shows for whatever reason. Usually, it's like key member left, the music through writing's not as good as anymore, some big change happened, some weird career move. Most of the bands I've seen, you know, very consistent, very good, seem to be doing pretty well, which is cool to see. Yeah, good to hear. That's... It's kind of my take on it too, is there's always a reason for everything. And when you hear about something not doing well, it's never just one thing. It's complex. None of this is simple, but uh, Chris, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to redo this episode and to just do the episode in the first place. And congrats on still killing it. Yeah. Appreciate you having me again. It's been great. Anytime.